Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 28. 26, 27, and 28 of Ezekiel deal with the city of Tyre and the leadership. So let's pick it up where Paul was reading chapter 28, verse 11 through 19. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in the garden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You are the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities and by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought forth fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. As we make our way through Ezekiel, we're getting a little bit closer towards the end of it. Uh, 40 through 48 is a unique section all by itself because it just deals with the, um, the millennial kingdom. So the historical part of it, and uh, 38 and 39 are prophecies that we're watching unfold in the Middle East right now. But basically in these chapters here, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, their entire ministry have been foretelling the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple itself. They ran into opposition from other prophets who were saying basically none of this is going to happen. God would never destroy his own temple. Don't worry about being in captivity. You're going to be going back. As we look at chapters 26, 27, and 28, Jerusalem has already fallen. The temple is already destroyed. And we read in chapter 26, we did this last week, that now Nebuchadnezzar is turning his eyes away from Jerusalem and he's looking at the surrounding cities and countries. And one of the first ones is the city of Tyre. And they were sort of in gloating mode. Um, David was friends with the king of Tyre at one time. Solomon fell out of favor with him. But as we looked at uh, chapter 26, they have sort of this attitude that uh, they're going to be 
partakers of some of the spoils of Jerusalem. And so last week's study um, in chapter 26, and one thing that we continually want to bring to your attention, and, and that is in one verse, you can have a double prophecy, you can have gaps in time, and such was the case last week with the destruction of Tyre. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city when it was on the mainland, and he just left it. The people, rather than rebuilding on the mainland, there's an island about a 1,000 yards offshore, and they simply, because they were Phoenicians, they were the, the sailors of the ancient world, second to none, they simply rebuilt Tyre on this island. And now to get to it, you'd have to get to it by ship. But then, in the very next verse, it talks about the destruction by Nebuchadnezzar, and it uses the word he, referring to Nebuchadnezzar. But in the same verse, it changes from he to they, and the they is a reference to Alexander the Great. This would happen 300 years later, when Alexander came and he saw that he couldn't, the city was not there, but they were out on this island. The prophecy said that they would throw the timbers, the columns, and they would scrape the city clean and throw it in the sea, and that's exactly what Alexander did. He built a causeway. And by doing so, he moved his army, and he captured and destroyed the city of Tyre to the point where Ezekiel says it will never be rebuilt again. Sidon was attacked at the same time. Sidon has been rebuilt. Tyre has never been rebuilt. But the causeway is still there today. And um, I, I showed an air shot from it last week. That's 26. 27 is nothing more than a lament. Um, a song about the greatness of the city and how it is no more. And we refer to that as lament. Now when we get to chapter 28, if you want, let me draw your attention to the first 10 verses. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, and he says, say to the prince of Tyre. This is a human. And um, uh, he was lifted up. Uh, he was full of, he was um, full of pride. And um, here he's referred to as the prince in the first 10 verses. But when you get to verse 11, it goes from prince to king. And I've entitled the morning's message, the king of Tyre, Lucifer. Because the personage that we have in the first 10 verses changes, and now we're talking about um, Lucifer himself. Because we read in verse 11 that he was a seal of perfection and full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, and he was in the Garden of Eden. So it's not a mortal man that we're referring to here. And here we have a description of the highest order in the angelic realm, and evidently, Lucifer was at the top of the pile. I can't imagine what perfect beauty looks like, but that's how he is described, perfect in beauty and full of wisdom. Part of his makeup evidently had to do with precious stones that covered his body, and we read them and we listed them, but more than that, 
somehow part of his being was involved with music because it mentions the, the, uh, the, the timbrels um, that were part of the, his workmanship and pipes. So here we have this amazing creature that walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones and he was perfect. Now, I can't wrap my head around this because here we have the most beautiful thing that God ever made. He's covered with these gems and he's in this walking in the midst of a fiery flame of some sort. And when I put that all together, I get a picture of something that's beyond description and beauty. Guys, when you bought your, your wives your, your wedding ring and you're out shopping and they bring it out from underneath, you always notice how they hold it under some really bright light so they, so they can get the full sparkle and effect of the, 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 the perfect cut of the diamond. That's what I think is going on here. I think these precious stones and walking through the fire, some sort of illumination and beauty that even enhanced his own beauty, it's something that I think defies human description as we read about something that the Lord said this was his masterpiece as far as the angelic realm was, was concerned. All the way up into the word until. In verse 15, until iniquity was found in you, And this next verse raises more questions than it gives answers. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. So we have a perfect universe. Everything is under the Father's uh, perfect control. They're in perfect worship and submission to him, except this one decides of his own free will that he wants to be like the Father. And somehow there is involved at this time trading, I do not know what that means. I do know that it led to violence, and I do know that eventually he sinned, and now for the first time, sin is introduced to God's perfect universe, and as a result, he had to be destroyed. And when I say destroyed, I mean only from the glory and the ambiance that this creature possessed because by the time he's cast down to planet Earth, we read here that he was in the garden, still very much alive, but not very much the anointed cherub that covered. So as we look at these verses here, this morning I would like to take an in-depth look at our adversary from his beginning, where it says in verse 15, in the day that you were created until his, his, he finds his fate. Now, the Bible gives him many names. Bear with me as I go through um, this list because they're all referring to the same being, Lucifer. Let me just say this on, on, on the get-go. He was only called Lucifer before the fall. After the fall, he's no longer called Lucifer. He's called the devil or Satan or any of these names I'm about to read. From Revelation 9, Abaddon. Also from Revelation 9, the angel of the bottomless pit. is called Apollyon, which means destroyer, the accuser of the brethren, adversary, angel of light, antichrist, Belzebub, Belial, the crooked serpent, 
the dragon, the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the enemy, the wicked one, the father of lies, Jesus called him, God of this world, the great fiery red dragon, man of sin, murderer, father of lies, power of darkness, prince of the power of the air, roaring lion, ruler of darkness of this world, ruler of this world, serpent, spirit that currently works in the children of disobedience, the tempter, and a thief. And I probably missed some of them. All of these are reference to the same being that we read about in our text here this morning in Ezekiel chapter 28. I want to point out one distinction here and do a little sidetrack on false doctrine. Whenever we have a study, we want to take the scriptural, uh, the scriptures seriously, but also literally. Good place for an amen. Seriously, but also very, very literally. Jesus said you can't even remove a, a jot or a tittle. You can't take nothing out. And the last thing the Bible says is you better not add anything, add anything to it either. Just leave it alone and let it speak for itself. And so we find here, verse 15, it says, in the day you were created. Now, he is a created being, which means he had a beginning. But he doesn't have an end. I have a beginning, you have a beginning. But whether you're saved or lost, you're eternal. And um, that includes everybody. So let's just settle this one thing for starters. We should never confuse Lucifer, Satan, and Jesus as counterparts. Like we would have a counterpart for our government who would meet with a counterpart from another government. They would be equals. Satan and Jesus are not counterparts. Jesus created Lucifer. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are in earth, whether they're visible or invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, that would be the angelic realm. All things were created by him and all things were created for him. The only thing that has always been and always will be is the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. They've always existed. I can't wrap my head around it. I can wrap my head around a beginning point A and even going off into eternity, but something that has always been. My point, created, Lucifer was a highly beautiful creature which seemed to be the very, very pinnacle of God's creation. Now the reason I bring this up is the Mormons believe that Jesus and Satan are spiritual brothers. The teaching that Jesus and Satan are spirit brothers is born out of the Mormons' misunderstanding and distortion of scriptures as well as some of their extra biblical teaching. That's the adding to the word of God. They consider to be authoritative. Simply put, there is no way you can read the Bible using any type of sound hermeneutical principles and come away with the idea that Jesus and Satan are spiritual brothers. The scriptures are very clear that Jesus is fully God, not some type of lesser God as the Mormons and other cults believe. The scriptures are also very clear that God is transcendent above his creation, 
which simply means that there is no comparison between Christ the creator and Satan his creation. Mormons believe that Jesus Christ was the first spirit child born to God, the heavenly father with one of his many wives. Instead of acknowledging Jesus as the one true God, they believe he became God just as they one day will become gods themselves. That is um, standard Mormon doctrine. Uh, But the Bible tells us here in Ezekiel that he was created and it was the creator that created this being that we know today as the devil and Satan. The reason for his fall we find here is he got caught up in his own beauty and because of his, his beauty, it corrupted him. And um, as, as a result, there was also the pride. And again, this trading. I have no idea what to tell you about that. Trading in heaven? What do you trade in heaven? I know that he was persuasive. Revelation 12 says that one-third of all of the angelic host that now are demons on planet Earth Jude tells us some of these demons are reserved until the day of judgment. They're incarcerated. Remember when Jesus cast the, um, um, the, the legion out of the man in the land of the Gadarenes? And he said, who are you? And he said, legion, because we're many. And they said, we know who you are, but don't cast us into the abuso before the time. He's referring to a place where some demons are alive and well and have access to the planet. Some evidently are so fierce that they're incarcerated, according to the book of Jude, until the day of judgment. And I'll get to that when I get to Revelation chapter 9 because they're going to be let loose um, during the, the great tribulation period. So the reason for his fall, you know, we can identify with this a little bit. You start a business, it's a mom and pop business, it starts out small, things are fine. And all of a sudden you got a Walmart. <laughs> and a lot of responsibility. And now they're downsizing, and now there's pressure. Then there can be problems. I can, I can identify with that. And uh, ha- having a, a workload. Or then you have to pay the taxes. You're not straight up with your taxes, and so you sin. I can wrap my head around that. What was going on here, it just simply said... He was full of trading and violence and he sinned. That's all we know. So that's all I'm going to say. How's that? Good enough? All right, let's go to Isaiah chapter 14, which gives us more clarity and definition of the pride of um, Lucifer. He got caught up in himself. It's always a danger, especially when God begins to bless And um, you can think you can do it on your own or you don't need anything or anybody. Become very self-centered as he did here. Chapter 14, verse 12 begs the question, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you have centered your heart. I call what we're gonna read here the five I wills. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. 
on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. He's always wanted that worship, as we're going to see in John 4. Eventually, he's going to have that worship when he enters as the Antichrist. And it says, all the world, um, in the book of Revelation, and all the world worshipped the dragon who gave power to the beast. The whole world is going to worship sometime the devil, and this is what he's always wanted. Yet, verse 15, you will be brought down to hell, to the lowest part of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world a wilderness, destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? So Isaiah, along with Ezekiel, are the two main Old Testament scriptures that give us what happened, why he fell, his position of prominence in the, in the, um, in the throne room itself. And um, we'll now switch gears and go to where he is cast down, not with this glory, and where he has his first contact with humans. So now I need to have you turn to Genesis chapter 3. And of course, we have in Genesis 2, on the sixth day, God created man. He created Adam before he created Eve. He created Adam out of the dirt of the earth. He breathed into his nostril and he became a living being. And we find that he saw everything that it was good And yet he saw that Adam wasn't complete. And so he created Eve. Now there's a difference here, and I'll come back to this later. Eve was not created from the dust of the earth. We're told that the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh. Then the rib which the Lord God had made, taken, he made a woman. And he brought her to the man and said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman and she shall uh, be uh, taken out of the man. So even though they're both human, they were made differently. And I'm gonna come back to that, so just remember it for now. So now we have the introduction of Lucifer, Satan, for the first time in the Bible. Chapter three, the first couple verses. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he can speak, so he speaks to Eve and he says to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Question at this point, is not that what God said? And, um, and the woman said, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat of it nor touch it lest lest you die. So what he has done from the beginning, this is what I call his MO, his method of operation. It really hasn't changed for 6,000 years. He challenges the word of God. And he twists the word of God. As God said, you shall not eat of the tree of, of uh 
of it. He goes on in verse six, it said, um, verse four, and the woman said to the serpent, you're not gonna die, that's a lie. For God knows that the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. So here he comes, challenging the word of God, and Eve is listening, and so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, was pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. Let's just stop right there. Here's his M.O. that has not changed. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The lust of the eyes look good. It's the best looking fruit in the whole garden. And the lust of the flesh, everybody likes to eat, so let's eat. I want to taste that. And then the pride of life. You mean if I eat that, I'll be like God? And I'll know the difference between good and evil? So she was deceived. She was lied to. And she ate. And then she said she gave to her husband with her and he ate. I want to know what went on between that period and what happened with what Adam was thinking during this time. Because I believe the moment that she ate that, that we know that afterwards the result was they realized they were naked. What does that mean? It means that there was such an innocence before. I believe they were clothed in light. It's just my opinion. But all of a sudden she ate and now she's naked and no longer covered. Well, imagine Adam running into his wife for the first time after this. Baby, what have you been up to? (laughs) You're naked. And um, there's an interesting scripture in Romans chapter five that tells us that death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Adam had a transgression. What was his transgression? And then it says, Adam, who was a type of him who was to come, which is a reference to Jesus. So my question is, how is Jesus a type of Adam? And what I believe the answer to that question is, that he knew that God said, if you eat of that, you're going to die. And now he's looking at his wife, who I'm sure he loves, his companion, and she she has a death sentence hanging over her head. She was deceived. Adam's not deceived. He knew full well what had happened. And of his own free will, and of his own free choice, he chose to eat of that fruit. Why? I believe because he loved his wife so much that he was willing to die for her. And that's why I believe in Romans it says Adam is a type of Christ because Jesus was willing to die so that I could live and not be separated from him. I could be wrong, but it makes sense to me and um, I would not be dogmatic about what I just said. If you'd turn with me to, uh, I want to get a little sidetracked here and talking about Um, women in the church and their responsibilities. I got it wrong. I said 2 Timothy, the first um, session, the first uh, uh, in the morning message. So they always correct me in the prayer room afterwards and said, Dwight, it's not 2 Timothy, it's 1 Timothy. So would you please turn to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. 
And because I like to keep the church up on what's happening as we watch it um, change day by day, compromise with the scriptures day by day, allowing political correctness and uh, latest trends to rule and guide the church rather than using the word of God as its source. So in 1 Timothy 2, picking it up in verse 9, it deals with the subject of women being in the pulpit and taking a position as a pastor. And it picks up in verse 9 of chapter 1 Timothy um, chapter 2, verse 9. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly things, but which is proper for woman professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. You need to know here he specifies over a man. But to be in silence, reason. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. He went into this thing with his eyes wide open. He was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she'll be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. Now, before I go any farther, before you decide you want to write me emails about this, I want you to know that the Bible teaches that there's neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile, for your slave, we're all one in Christ. God has no respecter of persons. Having said that, the male's authority when it comes to teaching the word of God is clearly laid out for this. This is not a gray area. This is black and white. What is being said here by Paul is not um, subject to well, that's just the way they did things in the first century, and now that we live in the times we live in now, it's exempt. I don't believe that for a second. I believe when it says here that I have authority over a man to teach, I believe that's exactly what it means. Now, having said that, um, we read in Second Corinthians um, 11.3, he says, I, Paul saying, I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceives Eve, by his craftiness, so your minds may be may not be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. And First Timothy two thirteen, we just read it. For Adam was formed first and differently. The Bible says that the woman was made for the man, not the man made for the woman. And when it comes to the area of the authority of doing what I'm doing this morning. Um, the Bible clearly states that there should not be women teaching from the pulpit. Do you know how politically incorrect that is when I say that? And I only had a couple of girls get up and walk out of the first service. I thought there would be more. But they've been preconditioned by our society and not the word of God. Now, I would like to say that Calvary chapels are exempt from this. It's not, it's not the case. We've been infected by it too. So there comes times when I do name names um, and I want you to know the women that are in the pulpit who are disregarding us or twisting the scripture to make it say what it wants to say. And I'll just give you the main ones. Beth Moore, 
She's very popular. Joyce Meyer, Paula White, Cheryl Broderson, Broderson, Brian's wife, Priscilla Shire. By the way, Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa are hosting Priscilla Shire uh, this coming February 3rd. And he, he's explained this away in such a way, it's one of the reasons that there's been a split in the Calvary Chapel movement. The Bible study that I'm giving this morning was, was, uh, was given in a Calvary Chapel in Southern California. I won't mention the pastor's name, but I respect him for doing what he did. He taught what I just taught. He was on our Christian radio station owned by Calvary Chapel. The day after he gave the message, his program was removed for uh, stating that. And so um, I'm bringing it up because it's an issue. Some people get stuff off the internet. And they don't know what to believe. Now you know what Pastor Dwight believes and what he knows. And on this particular issue where we stand, this is not a gray area. Having said that, I have Mary come up periodically and she does prophecy updates. But she doesn't open the Bible and say, I want you to turn to the book of, and now follow me chapter by chapter, verse by verse. She would never do that. Women teaching women and, and, and the children. We have some of the greatest um, uh, women Bible teachers here that are so sharp. I'm thinking of Donna and Ruthie. Wish Ruthie happy birthday. It was her birthday yesterday. She was in the first service. So call her on the phone. Everybody call her today. And sing happy birthday to her. I did, along with, along with Mary. She'll never forget that one. But uh, we're blessed with women that have gifts. I I think of Priscilla and Aquila, um, who as a team would pull pull aside um, guys that weren't fully aware of all the gospel, and they taught them. So I don't want to be misunderstood, but I also don't want to be misunderstood when it comes behind standing behind the pulpit. The Bible says I'm going to receive the greater judgment for it. So I'm not going to add anything to it and I'm not going to try to explain away these scriptures here. So are we clear on that much? Good. Let's go ahead. What's Satan's current business and what's again his target? Let's turn to the book of Job. When I first got my Bible I thought what in the world is there a book called Job in the Bible? Is it, is, is you get a job somewhere here or what's this book all about? Job was a righteous man. And in verse 6, surprises some people when I tell them, Lucifer, unlike the Trinity, can be omnipresent. That means that God can be everywhere at all times. David said, where can I go from your spirit? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and go to the farthest distant lands, you're there. God's everywhere. Lucifer can't do that. And so here, we read in verse six of Job one, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, there he is, came among them. What, Satan's in heaven with other angels? That's what it says. And the Lord said to Satan, well, where do you come from? So he answered and said, oh, I've been going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Well, that's revealing. What does that mean? That means he can go from heaven, 
to earth. And in chapter two, we're going to find him back in heaven again. So he's, the Lord starts bragging on Job. And um, he said, have you considered Job? Uh, gets up and prays for his kids every morning. And um, he's blameless. He's upright. And um, Satan interrupts and he says, well, of course. Look what you've done for him. You've put a hedge around him. You've blessed him on every side. But if you stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, he will surely curse you to his face. What is interesting here next is what the Lord says. Behold, all that is, all that is in your power. What do you mean all that's in your power? When Adam and Eve sinned, Adam and Eve had the ownership of planet Earth. They were to tend the garden. It was theirs. When they sinned, it was forfeited. And that's what Revelation is all about when the Lord takes that title deed, which is the title deed to planet Earth, that he purchased back when he died on Calvary. He just hasn't picked it up yet. It's already his. But he's still called the God of this world. So he says, behold, it's in your power to to do that, um, but do not lay a hand on his persons. So now we have the sovereignty of God allowing this to happen. And you go, why would God allow Job, poor Job, to go through all the stuff that he does for 40 chapters? The answer is, how many people, how many times have we gone through difficult times and we've found great comfort in the book of Job? Knowing that if it could happen to a guy as righteous as Job and, um, and he was tested, that's what this was, was a test. So when it was all done and over with, he loses seven sons, three daughters, all of his wealth. And now we're gonna see if what Satan said is true about Job. He'll curse you to his face. Verse 21, Job arose from the ground and worshiped, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'm gonna return. The Lord gives, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God wrong. Wow. How do you, how do you stop a guy like that with that attitude? kids, possessions, everything, and to say, I came with nothing, I'm going with nothing, but God hasn't changed, he's still good, and he's still on the throne. All right, chapter two, it it comes up again where Satan is again in heaven, and um, the Lord says, by the way, I was watching, and um, um, Job didn't, didn't curse me, and Satan's come back to that is, yeah, well, he says in verse five, stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and flesh and you'll, he'll surely curse you to your face. And um, in verse six, so the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand, but spare his life. Again, the sovereignty of God. You can go this far and no farther. You can't kill him. So he covers him with bowl, boils from the top of his head, the bottom of his feet, He's in such agony and pain that when his best friends show up, nobody says a word for seven days. He's in that much pain. Scrapes the boils. It's a pathetic sight for sure. His wife said, enough already. Curse God and die. And Job said to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women. 
Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with, with his lips. What's your point, Dwight? The point is, we have an adversary who roams around looking at people that God is using and he wants to go after them and challenge them. And when you're tested, how are you gonna come out? God doesn't love me. How can a loving God, how many of you have heard this? How could a loving God ever allow this to happen? You point back to Job. And it's all a matter of perspective. Job's perspective, naked I came, naked I go. God is good. No, I don't understand everything that's going on. But I live by faith and not by sight. And my Bible says he works all things out together for good to those that love him. Even in the midst of the trial. Good place for an amen. And so you're going to be tested. Why this book of Job is so important? Because Christians suffer. Christians get cancer. Christians uh, lose their sight. And Christians go through trials. And we get comfort from, uh, the, from the book of Job here. Um, let's turn to um, Luke chapter 4. And while you're turning to Luke chapter 4, where Jesus was tempted by the devil, we read Revelation 12.10 that he is the accuser of the brethren and he accuses them before God day and night has been cast down. Do you know that he's in heaven still to this day? Well, what's he doing up there? He's accusing you, he's accusing me before God day and night. Now, ordinarily that would trouble me, but you see my defense attorney is the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) And whenever the accusation comes up, my defense attorney says, oh, no, 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 no. I bought that one. Yeah, it's true what he said, but I covered it with my blood. He's clean. End of discussion, end of it, end of issue. But that's what the Bible says. That's what, where he's at. In Luke chapter four, of course, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's just been baptized, and as a result of the baptism, he's now in the wilderness, fasting for 40 days and nights. He's eaten nothing, And that's when the devil shows up, when he's at his weakest, and he's hungry. And the devil said to him, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus said, it is written. Now this is important, because he answers the devil with scripture. It is written. Man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Well, then the devil took him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms in a moment, And the devil said to him, all the authority I give to you and the glory for this has been delivered to me and I can give it to whoever I want to. And notice that Jesus did not dispute the claim. He did not dispute it. He is the God of of this world. Therefore, if you'll worship before me, I'll just give it to you. Forget about the cross. Forget about all you have to go through. And Jesus knew seven times in John's gospel, he says, my hour has not yet come. He clearly told his disciples, he's going to Jerusalem, he's gonna be betrayed, scourged, crucified, killed, and then rise again the third day. He knew. And now Satan's given him the loop around. You don't have to do all that. I'll just give it to you. 
All you have to do is get down and worship me. And the Lord said, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you will worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. And the last temptation, he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. Now you got the devil quoting scripture. He will give his angels charge over you to keep you and in their hands they will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. In other words, they're gonna catch you before you hit bottom. Just go ahead and do it. And Jesus answered and said, it has also been said, written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him and never messed with him again. Is that what it says? No, until another opportune time. In other words, gang, you can get your victory one day in a temptation. And then when you're weak and vulnerable, he's right back on top of you, whispering in your ear, and you call yourself a Christian. Look at what you just said. Look at what you just thought. And he just, he is the accuser of the brethren. And so he'll wait for his opportune times. A victory one day doesn't mean the victory with our enemy is over. So not only did he go after the Lord and twist the scriptures, Peter seemed to be the spokesman for the disciples. So who does Satan go after? Luke twenty two thirty one says, he's talking to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you like wheat. He wants to make you ineffective. He wants to take you out. He doesn't want you to be making statements of the divine revelation. Who do men say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the Holy One. And so he's after Peter, and the Bible tells us in First Peter um, that he is a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. Those who don't have their armor on, just like he asked for Job. But his main target, above all the ones we've mentioned thus far, is the nation of Israel. And I need you to turn to Revelation chapter 12 with me at this time, and let me just set the stage as, I, as we turn to Revelation 12. When Jesus was here, he came into his own, the Jewish people. Israel, in Revelation 12, is the woman. And she gave birth to the male child who is Jesus. He came into his own, his own rejected him. And then he said to them, you won't see me again, Israel, until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the book of Hosea, uh, chapter five, the last couple of verses, the Lord says, I'm gonna return to my place until you confess your sin. And it's singular. It's not sins, it's sin. I'm gonna return to my place, and then when you confess your sin, um, then then and only then will I return. Then in chapter six of Hosea, it says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn, he will restore. How long? After two days, he will restore us, and the third day, we will live in his presence. All right, a day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. 
Two days ago, 2,000 years ago, Israel said they rejected him. And Jesus said, I'm not coming back again until you acknowledge your offense. So as you look at chapter 12, we find Israel, a remnant, being supernaturally protected. And um, let's pick it up with that much of a background, chapter 12, verse 7. One through six is the three main characters. We have the woman being Israel. We have the male child being Jesus. And we have the fiery red dragon who drew a third of the stars of heaven as the devil. And the interpretation, so there's no doubt about it, about the fiery red dragon is given to us in this chapter. Verse seven, Lucifer is still in heaven. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the devil and their dragon, and the angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was cast down to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in his kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. This event takes place right in the middle of the tribulation period. Right exactly in the middle. And you say, Dwight, well, how do you know that? All I have to do is read two more verses. When the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Who is the woman again? Israel. Who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. Now this is a whole Bible study on its own. It comes out of Isaiah 16 where the Lord says to Moab, Selah, Petra, hide the outcast from the spoiler. That's the exact verbiage used in Isaiah 16. For how long? Nourish her there for a time, singular, one year, times plural, two years, and a half a time, three and a half years. How long is the tribulation period? Seven. In the middle of the tribulation period, what happens? The abomination of desolation. The Antichrist, up till this point, and right after this, we have assassination attempt, and he's dead, but then he comes back to life. And notice verse four of chapter 13, so when he... When he comes back to life and his deadly wound was healed, it says they worshiped the dragon. What has he always wanted? He's always wanted to be worshiped. Paul talks about it in 2 Thessalonians 2, that when a man of sin is revealed, he goes into the temple of God, showing himself to be God. And he wants that worship, and they worship the beast, saying, well, who's like the beast who's able to make war with him. So his target is he goes after this remnant. We read in verse 14. 
but they're supernaturally protected at Petra for three and a half years. He can't get his hands on them. Why is this important? Because they are the ones who finally realized Jesus was the Messiah. Zechariah said, there's this question, where did you get those wounds in your hands? Asked by a Jewish person. And he said, I, I, I got them in the house of my friends. And it's referring to all of a sudden, can you just imagine your whole life being brought up in Judaism, waiting for someday for the Messiah to come? Only the Messiah can give permission for the temple to be built. They're waiting. It's in the news every day. And all of a sudden you realize, you mean it was Jesus all the time? And so what do they do? They call on the name of the Lord. That's why the remnant has to be supernaturally protected. And that's what God does. That brings about his fate. And this is where we'll begin to wind things up here. So his fate, let's go to, well, just one quick thing. Just turn back one chapter, uh, chapter 9. Chapter 9 is probably the weirdest chapter in the Bible. Remember I said in Jude that there's some demons that have been kept in reserve for the day of judgment? Well, here an angel comes down with a key and he unlocks the bottomless pit and we have this locust that come out and they're demons. They have power for five months. And um, a locust, it says they all march in order and there's a proverb that talks about locusts uh, that they, they're driven by the wind, they have no order. So these are different. But it tells them who their leader is in verse 11. And they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek it's Apollyon. Well, this is what I started the study with, with some of the names. The king of the bottomless pit is none other than Lucifer himself. And he's the one now that turns the key and lets them loose. But also in chapter 13, or is it, um, it's in 16, the very last of the end of the tribulation period of time, in verse 12, it says the Euphrates rivers is dried up that the ways of the kings of the east might be prepared. How do they get there? Verse 13, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So here we have demons that go and um, stir up and bring these kings. Verse 14, for they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. It's the battle of Armageddon. Who's gathering everybody together? Demons. And um, I can't let this go by, it's just a mind boggler to me. After you get through chapter two and three of Revelation, it's all red letters. You don't have red letters again all the way through the book of Revelation until this next verse. So it's like he's giving us the information and then he says, stop. All this stuff sounds pretty heavy. Are you sure it's true? So now we have in red letters, that means Jesus is stopping the statement and he's got a special message for me 
in you. And he says in verse 15, behold, I'm coming just like I said as a thief. Blessed is he who's watching and keeps his garment lest he walks and he sees shame. Then it goes right back into the train of thought of the battle of Armageddon. They came together to the battle of Armageddon. Why would the Lord do that? Gang, this is pretty heavy stuff. Opening keys and demons coming out and people trying to die and they can't die. That's pretty far out stuff. Only a guy from the 60s can get away with saying far out in these days. <laughs> and so the Lord jumps in and says, all true. Every bit of it is true. I'm coming, just like I said. And um, the angel of the bottomless pit, who is the king of all the demons, he is the one who draws them together. And his fate is all done and over with in chapter 20. Uh, Battle of Armageddon, the, uh, the beast and the false prophet, they're singled out and they're cast alive, verse 20, into the lake of fire. But not Lucifer. He's not thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 20 is a thousand year millennial reign. And you have a thousand years go by before you get to verse seven of chapter 20 and it says when a thousand years were expired, Satan will be released. When the Lord returns, he chains them up for a thousand years. And the question is, once you got them, why would you ever let them go? And really, it gets down again to man's free will. And this is so important for us to understand in the times that we live, that you're not predestined to go to heaven or hell. You have a choice in the matter. Whosoever, God is not willing that any should perish, but all would come to repentance. So everybody who goes into the millennium at the beginning, they're all saved. But they're going to have children. Those children are going to have more children. And the earth is going to be greatly populated but they don't automatically become saved because their parents were saved no more than you are saved because your parents were or weren't saved. It was your choice. So up till this time, the Lord Jesus Christ has been ruling with a rod of iron. It's done his way. But now we're entering eternity. And now if we're gonna spend eternity with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you have to have a choice. So there is no choice. The Lord is ruling with a rod of iron. He's going to do it his way. So what does he do? He provides the alternative. And now that's the reason. Satan, verse 20, is released from his prison. Why? So that he can go out and deceive some more. The nations, the four corners. And here's the thing that's amazing. Living in a perfect environment with a perfect king, No curse, the lion lays down with the lamb, and you have this perfect world. And yet, when the Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, who can know it? It's proven right here. Because when given a choice, what does the heart do? It rebels. How far do you have to go back to do that? What's the first word your baby said to you? (laughs) From the cradle to the grave. No. And that's called sin, it's called rebellion. And here we have, when given a choice, they actually choose to rebel. 
just like Satan somehow persuaded one third of all the angels to rebel with him. Well, verse 10, my favorite verse in the Bible. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Isaiah 14, the last part of our, our study said, and he shall be no more forever. So when we enter our, none of this during the millennium occurs to us for the church anyway. This is a millennial kingdom. We'll rule and reign, and we'll have our own residence in the New Jerusalem. And I knew I went way past my time this morning, but I'm in Haiti mode, and you guys got off really easy the second service because I could go on for a couple hours more easy. I'm used to it this, this whole week. Just kidding, let's stand. Thank the Lord for his word. Lord, we are amazed of the accuracy of your word, that we do have an adversary. And Lord, this morning, we pray that we would not be influenced by his own TV show that he has on TV called Lucifer. That we would not be influenced by Hollywood. But Lord, we would not be influenced except anything other than your word which you said cannot be added to or changed and to be led, be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. So it gives us confidence, Lord, in these dark days that we do have an adversary. But it's a simple fact of greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And a simple um, resisting him will cause him to flee. Thank you for making us your sons and um, giving us this authority. Bless your people as we go out this day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.